We will continue as such through our exposition in the Gospel of John. Where we arrive now. We arrive now at chapter number 8. And we will now take and embark on what's considered to be the, the master's dissertation to the people. The reason why I say it's a dissertation is because last time we were here by verses 1 through 11, well, granted, John seven fifty three to 11, John 53 to chapter 8, verse 11, we come to take upon an adage that historically some have find fault or criticism or various debates as to its placement. And the manuscripts of where they place the adage, uh, considering what transpired in the temple that day, as to the importance of it, I believe Pastor Jason brought a very good point about the apostolic spirit that's contained in that passage. Well, I am convinced that that passage, and given where the manuscripts placed it, even now in your Bibles today, that is footed properly in chapter number eight, I feel it actually allows us a segue actually even well to where we're going to now embark on the master's dissertation with verses 12 until the very end. And it's a dissertation because by verse number 12, we have a thesis. We have an axiom of which provided from this proof and axiom, the Lord then goes on and provide proofs and evidential data. And then by verse 58, we come to a conclusion. Now, with one's soteriology, which is the study of salvation, you can have your viewpoint skewed when you take upon this adage in this text. But whether you are Arminian or Calvinist, universally, there are a lot of ideals that they come to a agreement upon. Therefore, through this, where we're going to embark today, we will be looking at verses 12 through 20. Though, I want to make you aware and note, Verses 12 to 29 is the proper introduction, the complete aspect thought to the introduction of his thesis. But for the sake of time, we will stop at verse number 20. Thus then, hear now the reading of God's holy word, John 8, verses 12 through 20. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying by yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered back and said, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, but I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Amen. 
So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus said, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. By verse 20, these words were spoken in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one sees him because his hour had not yet come. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us, Lord, and those who are able-bodied and able to be here to give a lending ear, Lord, we say thank you. For such amenities that we, in such mercies, we cannot thank you enough. After now taking on the means of grace of which we have made our prayer supplications known to you, have the word being read We've now come to this aspect, which is the preaching of your word. So be with thy servant as he teach and feed your sheep. And be with them and let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. And knowing this, that now as our Lord provides the doctrines to which the church can rest their head upon, we have more clarity to understand full and well the will you have for the world. It was done perfectly by your son. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, I'll be it. By verse number 12, our master makes a note, or John makes a note to notate to the reader and the individuals that he spoke to them again. And again, like I said, the fact that verses 1 through 11 is properly stated, by verse number 13, you could probably estimate that the individuals he speaks to again is the Pharisees and the scribes. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting. We note by verses, uh, I believe is um, verses 2, we note how the Lord spoke in the temple after coming from the Mount of Olives. So the temple of which he is speaking from, it is not to be confused with what was done in Capernaum, but rather it is that temple of which was in Jerusalem. And granted, the placement of the Mount of Olives is only written once in the book of John, in all of John. And the reason why is because of this vicinity. The mountain sat east of Jerusalem, uh, Zechariah 14.4. It was opposite of the temple, Mark 13.3. And it overlooked the vicinity of the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22.39. And it was only, the garden was only a stone throw away, Luke 22.41. So then as to this particular discourse it is apparent why the apostle makes it intentional to notate the location in the temple of which our lord takes to this dissertation by verse number 20 in chapter 8 he notates that it was done in the treasury how so because look at the convenience and the difference between the two adages the first Indication of which he dealt with the adulterous woman is at the center of the court. But here in the treasury, now he has a fuller audience, alike to the last great day that he took on the Feast of the Booths. So all the eyes 
and everybody's attention is fixated on him. But what's amazing, what's so telling and amazing, especially about this particular discourse he's going to take from verse 12 to chapter, I'm sorry, from verse 12 to the end of the chapter with verse 58, is going to be in particular how, again, their indignation, their resentment, their outright outrage, to which he exclaims his oneness with the Father. So, with the next clause in verse number 12, looking at the thesis and at what it holds and what is stated, it creates intrigue, trepidation, inks, and above all, indignation. Because the Pharisees note to him by verse number 13, your testimony is not true. You're testifying about yourself. What could have created these feelings of outrage and resentment? Simply put, the Messiah stated, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, at face value, one might see the Messiah is making himself out to be some wide, wise sage. And to those who take to believe his words, they will think I'm now going to come to a elevated and heightened ability of knowledge just to hear him speak i might be able to regurgitate and parrot the words and people will be able to see that the aspects of life has been emboldened but when the jews hear this how could they be feeling well what kind of feeling could they've had the pharisees explain you are a liar in fact this adage is somewhat similar because in speaking about being a light to the world and not in this particular rhetoric, but in the proposition of it, in chapter 7 by verse 35, they were quite intrigued in terms of where he tends to go. Do you recall? And I use a break here. Is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? You see, in their mockery, they could have just said, well, he crossed the sea and fixed him, seat, fixed him a seat amongst the Greeks and other parts of the world not known to us and teach and dwell with them. <laughs> Why, yes, that's what he clearly intends to do. See, you're not anything special in regards to your seat amongst the kingdom. You were given a job, but clearly you failed at it. So now I have come and I'm going to write the proper work that I have been entreated to do. You see, as the Messiah denotes himself as the light of the world, Christ in his humanity is illuminating his glory. As a human being, it is very difficult to believe someone can take what we've seen through metaphysics and what we just know as normal aspects of life and shapeshift them. Again, to be there and to see five loaves and two fish multiply to feed many, that's not normal. To walk on water, that's not normal. Such signs and wonders are not something that the normal human being can do. 
So the aspect of him to just tell them plainly that here I am to serve as a way out of darkness, he entreats you to believe. For him embodying the light that comes into the world, he shows how much darkness is in it. In fact, Christ's divinity is so apparent, we as individuals are overwhelmed that when we are moved by the Spirit, we are fixed to obey him. And what is the promise of that obedience? Eternal life. Evident here is properly known. I bring you first, John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. More evidence, John 3, 19 through 21. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But note by verse 21, but he who practiced the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, having been wrought by God. And note the totality here. As Jesus now comes and you are obedient and that promise of eternal life is then made. Note what he states, John 5, 21 through 24, but I want your attention to see the context of it in its tonality by verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into the judgment, but pass out of death into light. I will use Calvin now to assist me in trying to Segue and make this properly known why this thesis is so important. Note what Calvin states here. Christ declares that he is the light of the whole world. For by this universal statement, he intends to remove the distinction not only between Jews and Gentiles, but between the learned and the ignorant, between persons of distinction and the common people. What the manner of obtaining the light is pointed out to us in Christ, we are condemned for our blindness. And everything else which we consider to be light is compared to dark as if it was a very dark night. For Christ does not speak of what it is that belongs to him in common with others, but he proclaims his particular own estate. For though he is far removed from us from respect to his body, he daily sheds his light upon us by the doctrine of his gospel and the secret power of his spirit. Yet we have not a full definition of this light unless we are illuminated. We are illuminated by the gospel and the spirit of Christ so that we may see in him what is hidden the foundation of all knowledge and wisdom. In fact, he immediately confirms by a promise 
that we also be powerfully affected by so large and magnificent this promise that those who direct their eyes to Christ are certain that even in the midst of their darkness, they will preserve or they'll be preserved from going astray. But not for a short period of time until they finish the course. So for those who hear the Messiah speak, I am the light of the world. To hear this thesis being brought forward and to show the promise that is made by this light that you will have life. The believer sees hope. But on the contrary, the irony of the Sanhedrin is pretty known and pretty clear because they don't see hope. In fact, their note here is very telling because for them to make this statement or the apostle to make this statement known to us, why did he not do it in John 5 when the Lord spoke about the resurrections? And why did he keep Nicodemus silent after he stated how how can these things be when it comes to the spirit? I mean, was it the apostles' attention to have the Sahedrin even repeat what the Messiah stated in John 5? For note by John 5.31, the Messiah stated himself, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Because you see, with their objection, the Sanhedrin, at face value, the two seems to be in agreement. But if you know closely, they actually differ. For by denying the deity of Christ, their very statement conveys this. No one here is testifying on your behalf. Or, by another version, no one here in this session and no one amongst the people here backs your claim. But what they fail to realize, and especially those who are not moved by the Spirit, if you didn't properly and continue to read in chapter 5 by verse 32, he actually clarifies his previous statement by verse 31. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You see, the harmony is that the Godhead is of one. And recall when I went through the understanding of the hypostatic union. God, the Son coming in the form of man, is just one of the three personalities that embody within the Godhead. He, he, it's not difficult. But the problem that a lot of individuals have is they tend to run to their own interests because it either makes it easy for them to assemble and make a way to understand life, or rather, it's just a lazy way than to take to studying what was actually understood with the gospel message. And if that comment or statement may seem to be difficult to kind of take into place, well then let's go down the rabbit hole here as the Lord continues in his dissertation by verses 14 through 18. Because now these are the words of the Messiah 
and they come with even greater clarity. Even if I testify by myself, at verse 14 states here, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. See, as tied back to chapter 5, the harmony is clear and it is very apparent. For, I even note to you here, in chapter 7, he speaks about going away for a little while because he's going to go to him who sent me. Here, the, the understanding is very clear. He is making a privilege that is denoted from the blessing he's received from the Father. He did not notate the Father to them by verse 14, but he indicates to them where he's going to continue with his proofs and his explanation by conveying where he initially comes from. In fact, it's so interesting because in doing this same aspect, he then contrasts, I'm different from you. How so? When he states by verses, by verse, I'm sorry, by verse 14 in the latter clause, but you don't know where I come from or where I am going. And the extension he's showing here is that I am not like you. So everything that disseminates from here on forward is different. You see, this is why, again, he makes it a point apparent that as being the light in the world, he is what's stated as good. And the world is stated as evil. And his light and his divinity is shined so forth that not even the world can contain it. Five loaves and two fish walking on water, healing a lame man. All these signs and wonders are conducted. And what transpires? Either you believe or you don't. <laughs> you know, it better could be said. The Messiah could even denote it that you've grown at my human presence for you have not directed your eyes to the heavenly glory that is bestowed on the Son of God. So therefore, to put this whole prospect and to understand verse 14 together, as it stems from verse 12, it's best explained that Jesus, the Son of God, possessed an authority which we as individuals cannot ascertain to, we cannot attain to, and better yet, we can't even perform. For in his note of where he came from, he is showing that I humbled myself for my time here on earth. Because there is a time set for me. When I'm to be highly exalted. And there's no better honor to be highly exalted than to sit at the right hand of God the Father. 
Hebrews 1, verse 3. And as he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature, he upholds all things by the, by the word of his power. And when he made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So why? Everything comes with a reason. So why? Why was it necessary for the Messiah to sit at the right hand and do it in honor only bestowed to him? So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those on heaven and those on earth. Philippians 2.10 And because every need bow, there is a conclusion and a finality to put this all into context. 1 Corinthians 15.25-28 So he puts all enemies under his feet. And that last enemy that must be abolished is death. For when he has subjected all these under his feet, he will say all things are put in subjection. And it is evident he is expected to put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So that God will be all in all. That is the end. That's the conclusion. From the beginning, when he created the world, it was through him. So by the time we get to the end of the world, it is still through him. Nothing has changed. All that has transpired is the difference in time and how it to play its role in history. So you can choose... The individuals who can be listening here, you can choose which side of the fence you want to be at. The one who obeys and have a namesake of which you are associated with the carry of the kingdom or the one of which you only serve the purpose. And it was until a certain point in time, Jonathan Edwards said it well, your foot will slip. There is no ambiguity. It is very clear and it's very binary. Now, by his introduction and positing this thought, he's making his authority very, very, very clear and very, very upfront. And he's stressing, again, you and I are not the same in fact, to even make the contrast in his difference between his humanity and particularly the Jews here, he states by verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. This adage is still in harmony. For note, I bring your attention back to chapter 7 in John. Note the hypocrisy he brings forward to the Jews. Remember? By verses 19 through 23, in what they consider to be their proper interpretation of the law, he closes his argument by verse 24 when he states, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see, by verse 15 here in chapter 8, 
He's stating you judge because you do not have the spirit. It's no different than how he explained it to them in chapter 7. Only this time he's taken to a different tonality. I don't doubt. But then also to a different use of words to stem for what he posited. I am not like you. And given that you do not have the spirit, you do not search the scriptures. All right. Oh, for no. You stated you searched the scriptures because you think you have eternal life. But he states it's those same scriptures that testify of me. Because if you do search the scriptures, did he not say it well in chapter 7? You should be able to know if the teaching is of God or I teach of myself. And rather... It's interesting because in this particular contrast, one will see that when the Messiah states in his statement, I do not judge anyone, is he absolved from all judgment? No, 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 no. You see, he's stating here, unlike you who takes judgment as to one who is a judge or you want to be the quote unquote big opinion in the court of public opinion, I don't take to your assessment of how you judge. And I don't take to the way you do your rubric in terms of how you come to your judgment. Why? Because then by verse 16, when I do judge, my judgment is true. It's not false. In fact, I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. The authority that Christ is arising from this is to show, I come to do the will of the Father. John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Well, John 5, 25 to 30, just to give you even some more context. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now it is when the dead will hear the Son of God and those who are here will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And note by what he states by verse 27, he gave him authority to execute judgment. Because he is the son of man. <laughs> Don't marvel at this. Clearly, this is nothing new. So then, someone may be telling me, well, pastor... Surely the master is divine and his arguments are pretty clear as to one who I believe is in the spirit. Why could not our Lord just state plainly to them, I am God? It's because as he came onto this earth to reveal the mystery of the decree set before the foundation of the world, he cannot deny oneness with the father. He can't deny it. Because he has to perform it. 
He has to perform the will set out for him and him alone is the only one able to do it. I finish in John 5 again here at verse uh, 20 as it continues. For there is the hour that is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who did bad deeds to the resurrection of judgment. It was necessary for him to perform the will of the Father. I just plainly stated to you. It was necessary by John 1, 14. The word then became flesh. Why? To see the glory of the Son as the only begotten of the Father. Colossians 2.9 In him dwells the Godhead bodily. Calvin even quotes and states here, the reason is that his divinity was concealed under the veil of flesh he brings forward his father in whom it was even more manifest. He continues his dissertation here by verses 17 and 18 in which he does the comparison contrast between his humanity and our own. And by further distinguishing, he shows now the personality that distinguishes him from the Father. And this is a rare account. For note by verse 17, even in your own law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Amen. He's plainly now providing the understanding as to the personalities and person within the personhood of the Godhead. Now, for the higher critical scholars, this is a schism. For they would denote he is testifying about himself. But do they understand the context? Because in the prior, he states the testimony of two men, according to your law, is true. Now watch how he draws this to the Godhead. He accommodates himself, one, to the capacity, to those who are understanding. He's not here to repudiate the law. So the law continues to move forward here. But by conveying the distinction within the Godhead, he exclaims the truth that is denoting by the testimony of two or more. For in him, and his rightful place within the Godhead, he testifies that I myself am the Son of God, and the Father likewise attests to my testimony. He confirms it. In John 1, 32-34, our Lord takes to beginning his ministry in which John the Baptist denotes the testimony of him. 
John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you will see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Note John's testimony then. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Do you want to hear the Father's own words? Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10-12, and Luke 3.21-22. After being baptized, I'm reading the version of Mark, uh, Matthew here, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens are open. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, the voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You want to hear another adage? Luke 9, 28 to 36. During Christ's transfiguration, Peter, John, and James saw his glory and two other men standing next to him, Moses and Elijah. And rather than taking to Peter's interest in terms of worship, a cloud overshadows them. And a voice is then coming out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. He's showing to them, I'm here. Remember, Moses looked forward to this day. The prophets looked forward to this day when he resided in the flesh. To the point when Moses was leading the people out of Israel, he would not allow him to see his part precarnated state of which he had to hide him in the cleft of the rock because to beheld his glory in that estate, Moses would have died. So now they are given the God man and the veil of flesh. And he stands here to tell us that he has come. And as we are privy to hear the Father speak, especially given that Christ is the indwellment of the Godhead, the Jews still couldn't see it. For by their response and the continued indignation of him who the Father has begotten, they state, and retort, well, then where is your father? By verse number 19. So does our Lord answer them? Or does he take to the approach and how he answered those who returned back after they were fed in chapter 6? Note his statement. You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You see here, clearly, the Messiah is showing not only the distinction in terms of signs and wonders to which he performed in his humanity. It's not just in the sheer fact that he's been installed and endued with a privilege not understood and known to man. But also, he's not servant to any man. You want to take some notes? John 2, 24-25. Jesus was not entrusting himself because he knew all men. He knew himself what was in man. 
And it's a note. The Jews did not care. For by their adage of where is your father is not a plaintiff to tell us more. It was a matter of being flippant. For if they knew, like Moses, understood and waited for that day to meet him. Well, then when the Messiah states, who do you think that I am? They should have answered like Peter. Well, in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And by the Messiah's own blessing, he states, blessed are you, Simon. It's because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father who's in heaven did. Well, how about John the Baptist? Behold, he claimed him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember John 1, 29? But then how about as he had his discussion with his own disciples, John gives even more clarity in John 3, 35. The Baptist states, what he has seen and heard, and of that he testifies, and no one received his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure, and by note by verse 35, the father loves the son and has given everything all into his hand. Well, then, pastor, this is John the Baptist. This is Peter. It's pretty easy for them, right? Oh, OK. So you want to hear in regards to the oneness with the father in terms of the commonality with people? How about Mary Magdalene? who was returning to the tomb to perform the works of the acts of purification upon which the, the Messiah, upon dying here and being, um, being placed in the tomb, he resurrects, to which he responds to her by John twenty seventeen, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. Go and tell the brethren, I ascend to my Father and now your Father, to my God and your God. That's what the Jews miss. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. Because in how they inquired about the father and how he answered them, he wouldn't even entreat them to even name them by name. Why? Because when I first did it, you sought to kill me. John 5, 17 through 18, he states, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And then for this reason, the Jews are seeking him all the more to kill him. Not only because he broke the Sabbath, because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's your distinction. When you look at the thesis and how it started, I am the light of the world. And those who come to follow me will understand that you are being shepherded away from this world of darkness. He is showing I must lead the way first. But how can I lead the way first? Let's you understand the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is set before me and I must perform it. So then as I conclude, 
I'm going to bring your attention to that promise application that it has for our life today. And I want to take some time because we too can have a shed of unbelief. And this is an eye-opening event that we can do this. Some will claim, Pastor, I will never flimply, flippingly ask. I will never want to disrespect the master by saying, where is your father? But that's not what I'm stating. And consciously, you wouldn't even want to do it, let alone utter those exact words. But we have in our framework, in our weak minds and frame, to question him. Our confession by chapter 14, section 3 states, our saving faith comes in different degrees. It can be weak. Also, it can be strong. But oftentimes, it will be assailed and it can be weakened. And so this way in which it is weakened, the attacks that come in is very simple. It's doubt. That's what weakens your faith. Doubt. And it's a good example here in which you may be making an attempt to understand God aright. But yet you will come to find if you ever read the Bible or when you come to individuals, they will provide contradictions to your belief. You want an example? Sure. How about some est, 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 huh. How about certain core issues that come to attack the fundamental truths of Christianity? I apologize. My, my voice is a little dry here. And of these truths in particular, when doubt comes in, it can prove your faith to be worthless. So much so, you'll still be in your sins. Because if certain core fundamentals in Christianity did not transpire, go and look at the grave. Go to the cemetery. Look at your loved ones. Because if they have fallen asleep in Christ, or so you thought, in the doubt a certain Christian, uh, certain proper truths that have been installed by a work done by the Messiah did not come, they're never going to arise. They have no hope. They died in their sins too. And then us, we who are living today, we call ourselves Christians. When doubt arise, it's no wonder the humanists would attack us. In fact, sometimes they should even have pity. Why would, you, you guys are just easy believism. We become victims of our own interests because we believe the Messiah did not do the work of the Father. And I don't just have to stem it to the resurrection. I can stem it to various other things. But the will is very clear. To negate on one portion of the work of the, of the work of the Messiah 
is to negate the fact that he did not come to completely do the will of the Father. I bring your attention to Matthew 16 and 17 again. Because in that same note, it was Peter who told the Messiah, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So even in his state of grace, Peter stated aright. And the Messiah blessed him. But note, I did not continue towards the latter portions of that adage. Because note what happens as it continues in Matthew 16. Jesus began to show the disciples the will of the Father. What was the will? That he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and raised on the third day. So what does Peter do after hearing the will of the Father for the Messiah? Do you think he just celebrates and says, all right, no. He rebukes the Messiah. In fact, in Mark 8, towards the later portions of it, he even, he even gives the inclination to pull him to the side and say, what are you doing? But note what the Messiah does. Because in Mark 8, in he, Messiah looks at his disciples and then he looks at Peter. And Peter states as he's rebuking, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But turning back to him, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but of man's. Weren't Peter's intentions good? Weren't he just trying to prevent the Lord from dying? I mean, he didn't want him to die, right? Upon the time when the, the Sanhedrin sends the officers, a fleet and battalion full, to come and arrest him, it was Peter, which was revealed here, and we're going to learn in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels, it's like one of his own. He drew his sword and struck the servant in the ear. But what does our Lord state? To Peter. I mean, Peter's intentions were good, right? The Lord states, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Or how about Matthew 26, 53 through 54? He states here, or do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? By verse 24, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled which says it must happen this way? So if we heed the words of our Lord and believe him, we understand what he stated in that same hour according to Luke's account in chapter 22, verse 51. Stop. No more of this. That's a tell to us that when the Messiah says something, he comes with backing. The will of the Father must be performed.
your feelings, how you feel that day. Unfortunately, I'm here to tell you, if it's not going to bring the will of the Father, it does not stop. It is going to happen the way he said it's going to be performed. The only problem is you had doubt creep into your mind and therefore it's become a stumbling block for you. We should be unlike Peter. And in the moment of unbelief, believe the will of the Father for the Son. Because it's to our benefit. And you're going to see that as we get to the latter parts of John. That eternal decree before the foundation of the world was set so that he can bring his own back into the fold. Nobody gives enough credit that the Messiah prays on our behalf. In John 17, 24, he notes this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you also given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. And the reason why he prays for us and intercedes and adjudicates for us is because the end game, the conclusion is so that God can be all in all. I thank God that the Messiah has now come. He performed the work and taken a sacrifice. He resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God the Father because of this particular prayer so that when we die, we have hope. We are not like the humanists who die and perishes. When we go to the grave sites in a cemetery and our loved ones died in the faith, we have hope that the humanists cannot comprehend. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer.